an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bennell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, 72 years after they disappeared in the Cascades, a fitting tribute is given to two lost airmen. These guys that are divers that are here, they help me out in giving answers to people. And that's really what it was about, my own history love and study of history, and then being able to give people some answers. And then, from the archives, the twisted journey of Seattle's old Doughboy statue. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington, an evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural attractions. Time for All Over the Map. We're in. Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, joins us with a quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, the mystery of Kellogg Island has been solved. Felix? Maybe you didn't know there was a mystery of Kellogg Island, but we did talk about it a couple years ago on All Over the Map. It's one of my favorite spots anywhere in the world. It's in the Duwamish River, not far from Elliott Bay. What it is is one of the last remaining natural parts of the river. It's just a little piece of land, a few acres, with the main dredge navigation channel on one side and a nice curvy little natural channel on the other. You can see it in person from a port of Seattle Park. It's often visible from the air, especially if you're coming into SeaTac from the north. You look down, you look like you're looking back to the 19th century. Now, two years ago, I did some digging and came up with a couple of possible namesakes for Kellogg Island. Uh, a landowner and former Seattle Fire Department chief named Gardner Kellogg, and a doctor up on Whidbey Island named John Coe Kellogg, big figures here in the 19th century. There was no paper trail. Nobody I consulted from the port of Seattle to the Duwamish tribe to a handful of local historians could definitively say. Then, fast forward to a few days ago, my old friend Matt McCauley emailed me. He's a historian over in Kirkland. I've known him since high school. Matt was doing some research, stumbled across Gardner Kellogg's name on some property records. Matt knew about Gardner Kellogg's fire department career, and he remembered, he remembered our story from a couple years ago. He started wondering what other property records might reveal. With help from Greg Lang at the King County Archives, Matt got plat maps and deeds and figured out that Kellogg Island is named for... Yes. Drum roll, please. Yes. Gardner Kellogg's brother, David Kellogg. David Kellogg. And we had mentioned David in the story we did two years ago. As sort of, he was huh. kind of like a red herring in a mystery. You wouldn't have suspected him in, if you read my story two years ago. But David Kellogg bought that land from the U.S. government in 1865 and started subdividing it and selling it off. He called the area Kellogg Subdivision of Lot 11, very romantically named. And somehow <laughs> or other, the name Kellogg stuck to the island. And now, I know this probably seems pedantic, but I think it's worth celebrating when a granular detail about a pretty remarkable place can be nailed down definitively like this. That's a yes. big deal. So congratulations to Matt McCauley. And also, David Kellogg, Matt found, is a very colorful character. He owned the city's first drugstore. He battled Ezra Meeker over renaming Mount Rainier. Uh, David Kellogg preferred the indigenous name Tacoma. Really? And before he came to Seattle, he fought alongside abolitionist John Brown in bloody Kansas. So a really interesting guy. And before it was called Kellogg Island, James Rasmussen of the Duwamish tribe told me it was called Mud Island or Muddy Island. And since the Port of Seattle has been renaming many of its parks... Who knows? Maybe there will be a move to rename the island, too. But, you know, whatever it's called, it's an incredible place, Kellogg Island. And thanks to Matt McCauley and Greg Lang, we know just a little bit more all about it. Well, that's that's a better story than, than if it was named after the cornflakes. That would have been like the best to you each morning. Yeah, it would have been sort of a healthy way to start your day, but not necessarily very historically <laughs> accurate. Felix Spinell joins us with All Over the Map each Friday. All his features are at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. 
right from the start, Spokane's charm and lively spirit put us in a holiday mood, which was heightened when we reached the country club where the Washington State Open Golf Tournament was in progress. Seattle's Morning News, this is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And it's time for Felix Bunnell. It's not quite the final chapter, but the story of two lost Navy airmen that our resident historian Felix Bunnell has been following for a number of years reached a significant milestone just in time for Memorial Day. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, this was a very special private ceremony last Saturday. It was held up in the foothills of the Cascades, east of Carnation, about 10 miles down a private logging road at a place called Black Lake. I was fortunate to be invited to attend. The occasion was the dedication of a monument, a huge boulder engraved with the names of two lost Navy airmen, 23-year-old Ensign Gaston Mays and 25-year-old Lieutenant Benjamin Vreeland. They took off one day, 72 years ago, in a little trainer, a World War II-era single-engine Navy plane. They left from the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station in Seattle, what's now Magnuson Park, for a two-hour flight, and they were never seen again. You know, the loss of the two flyers was a tragedy, but this event on Saturday was a celebration. There were about 20 people there. We were all sort of kindred spirits. You know, these are, these are my people. And one of those people is Sean Murphy. He's part of the volunteer team, uh, the research of whom helped convince the Navy to officially conclude last October that the lost plane is likely in Black Lake. And that was a big deal for the Navy to acknowledge that. Other volunteers, Lee Corbin, a great friend of the show, we'll hear from both of them in a moment. Now, there's also a very special guest in attendance. Dan Vreeland lives in Austin, Texas. He's the nephew of one of the lost flyers. Benjamin Vreeland was his dad's brother, the Uncle Benny that Dan was too young to have ever met. So Sean Murphy took Dan down to the edge of Black Lake. He gave the lay of the land for the recent search and dive and a bit of a blow-by-blow as to what he and Lee think happened to Dan's uncle back in 1949. We had the anomalies right here, right off the other, uh-huh. right down there in about the middle, and then down over towards the edge over there. Where the, with the magnetometer, yeah. that's what the hits were. Now, that doesn't mean each of those hits no, was... No. But we figure the plane hit... Okay, see, that's northeast right there. Yeah. Those trees, in. those aren't the trees, but that's where the trees were that, that were, were topped. That were topped. So what it would, like Lee was explaining, it would have been coming in that way from there. Well, and they would have probably tried to center up on this lake. If they topped the trees, as we think they did, it means that it would have hit like this. So he would have either been in a stall or he was banking to it. Yeah. And once he hit those trees, I think he went, you know, Over, cartwheeled yeah. in. Yeah, and Dan Vreeland, just a really good guy. You know, he brought along some of his father's ashes. Actually, he mailed them ahead to Sean. And he let a small a group of us be there with him as he put those ashes in the lake. You know, it was important to Dan and to his mother that Dan's father, Theodore, be reunited with his long-lost brother, Benjamin. I mean, I feel like I was on a mission coming up here to do this, to be here for this. Definitely want to be here for this and to bring my father, a little bit of my father. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm a little bit of my father, too, so I brought that also. It's not, It's... Um, it's a celebration more than a memorial. It's, you know, it's celebrating a lot of work and culmination come to this point. It's also a beginning of possible more searches and maybe finding the wreckage. You know, I don't need a tangible piece to know that he's here. I mean, I, I 100% know he's here. Yeah, and the ceremony was led by Michael Polina of the American Legion Post in Snoqualmie. They're the guys who fronted about $8,000 to pay for the monument. Um, 
A naval commander from Whidbey Island was there. Even the state secretary of veteran affairs, um, Alfie Alvarado Ramos, was there. This was a, a first-class event just for a small group of people for these to honor these lost flyers. Now, I met Sean Murphy four years ago. He reached out to me because his uncle Pat, who died in World War II, is listed on that memorial wall at Memorial Stadium in Seattle Center. See, all these things are connected, Dave. Mm -hmm. he, he knew he had to help the families of the two airmen. My uncle was known where he died. He was known where he was buried and all of these things. And in this case, these are families that uh, never got full closure. Even though they knew they were dead, they didn't know with full closure exactly where they were. And there was people that, these guys that are divers that are here, they helped me out in giving answers to people. And that's really what it was about, my own history love and study of history. And then being able to give people some answers. You know, I mentioned Lee Corbin. He's the other half of the Black Lake team, and uh, it was his nearly decade of research that was critical in making the Navy take note last year and making Saturday's event possible. And in that research, what first captured Lee Corbin's imagination was Nora Mays. She's the mother of Ensign Gaston Mays, one of the lost airmen. Now, home for Nora Mays was Tennessee, but she came to Washington right after the plane disappeared. She figured out probably 70 years ago that that plane was likely in Black Lake. She even had divers searching there 60 years ago. This has, been, this has been many, many decades in the making, and she never gave up trying to find her son. Nora Mays was the primary person. Uh, she came out here every summer once the snows were melted, and she would, uh, she would just search these hills. And um, she, just, she just never gave up. She finally figured this is where they were, and... Uh, she just kept looking and looking and looking, and unfortunately, just never they never got the closure that uh, that she wanted. Yeah, she, she passed away many years ago. Now, I take credit for introducing Lee Corbin and Sean Murphy to each other. They really complement their skills and then getting this job done, getting the research, getting the Navy to buy in. They also got help from a guy named Scott Williams of the Maritime Archaeological Society. It was a definitely a team effort. And Dan Vreeland was so grateful for what Lee and Sean and everyone did. He was generous in his praise, generous in sharing his family's story. For the American Legion Monument, I'd say it's already mission accomplished. Uh, in honor of Lieutenant J.G. Benjamin Oliver of Reeland, 25 of Bridgeton, New Jersey, Ensign Gaston Eugene Mays, 23 of Clinton, Tennessee, departed Sandpoint Naval Air Station, Seattle, March 11th, 1949. Here they rest in these beautiful environs, dedicated by American Legion Post 79, Snoqualmie, Washington. It's really kind of nice having something to physically look at and a reminder and see and touch. Is, is there such a thing as closure? No, nah, no. Nah. There's acceptance, but nothing ever really closes. I mean, there's still more work to be done. We'll see what happens. Mm, maybe no closure, but well done just the same, Felix. Yeah, it was very cool. It was great to be there with all those people. They do want to search again. The mud on the bottom of the lake is very thick, and the plane might have broken apart on impact, may never be found. Also, the American Legion is still raising money to cover the $8,000 for the monument at the lake and a smaller version that the public can see at the Post in Snoqualmie. We have a link at My Northwest along mm -hmm. with a bunch of incredible photographs. So there's a, there is a version that's more accessible. But how, how do you get to the lake? Is it a, is it a hike? Uh, it's, it was about a 10, 12-mile drive. It's wow. on private property. It's not accessible, but they made it accessible for the day and to watch this monument being dedicated for this just amazing group of people. It's so cool to meet people like this whose passion takes them down these paths and uncover these hidden stories. Our resident historian, Felix Bennell. All his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. 
For this edition of From the Archives, if Seattle's giant bronze Doughboy statue could talk, he'd tell quite a tale. Johnny Doughboy found a rose in Ireland And she stole his heart with smiling eyes of blue Oh, when Bing Crosby comes on. He's a local, you know. He was born least, in Tacoma. I know. Yeah, a, didn't he throw a piano off one of the, the residence halls at Gonzaga? I thought that was at the Edgewater. No. Yeah, no, I think he did. <laughs> but there's I'm a statue there. Religion. They keep stealing the pipe, though. Apparently it's part of the anti-smoking effort. Oh, I haven't heard that, really. Yeah. Yeah, they have a great collection of uh, memorabilia there at uh, Gonzaga. Felix Spinell, our resident historian, is here for uh, this Veterans Day, and you found a piece of Veterans Day history, huh? Yeah, that's a, that song is called Johnny Doughboy, and the Doughboy is, was, was the nickname for American infantry soldiers in World War One. It's not the Pillsbury Doughboy that most young people think. We, when we say Doughboy, they think of popping yeah. fresh dough. This was an American soldier. And so back at, uh, in the 1920s, there was an effort to build a memorial here, and they, uh, a local sculptor named Alonzo Victor Lewis, he's Lincoln statue in Spokane and Tacoma, the, the memorial in Centralia to the massacre there. This is a, he's a credible sculptor. He made this statue in plaster, for a reunion of the 91st Division, which was a big deal here out of Fort Lewis. They had a reunion in the early 20s. And they, by 1924, he's, or 1922, he says, we're going to put a bronze one at the University of Washington. That never happens. 1924, the same mayor who cut the trolley fare for political reasons a few years earlier said, no, we're going to put this at the City Hall Park. No one even knows what City Hall Park is anymore. That's Muscatel Meadows, that piece of property oh, yeah. next to the courthouse. Yeah. Yeah. That never happened. A couple of mayors later, finally in 1928, They've opened the new Civic Auditorium, which is now Marion Oliver McCaw Hall, Mm -hmm, and they turn a shovel of dirt. We're going to put the statue here. That's 1928. So they make a bronze version. It comes and it sits in a crate at the Fremont Water Department maintenance barn for four years. So finally, it's unveiled. There's all this controversy around it. People complain about uh, whether it's art or not. Carl Gould, the great architect of the University of Washington, says, I don't know if that's art. The smile on its face, it has a bestial grin. Seriously. Yeah, that's one of the first things you notice. It's now It got moved up to Evergreen with Shelley Cemetery back in 1998. So one of the first things you notice is the grin, and I talked to the manager of the cemetery there. He actually has a bit of a grin on his, on his, his expression or his face. You're exactly right. The artist even indicated that it was the idea of coming back from the war with a, a bit of a, a firm but a grin, you know, a subtle grin on their face of returning back home. So happy to be back home. Why, why would that be controversial? It's just different, I guess. Most of the other doughboy statues, and there, I found an expert at a college in Brooklyn, an expert on doughboy statues who talked to me about this, and apparently there was lots of debate about these statues, about whether what they looked like, what kinds of gear they were wearing. Yeah. But this Gould calling it a bestial grin, the sculptor actually sued Gould for $50,000 for defamation, saying he'd hurt his business opportunities by saying he's a you know, bad sculptor, yeah. essentially. But anyway, so the, all around the country there are these battles, and I talked to this professor uh, yesterday. People did like to get riled up over these things, though. There's one in um, Memphis that veterans were saying, oh, you know, he's going up over the top of a trench. Uh, he wouldn't have been wearing a coat like that. So so the other thing, the next battle about this was, you know, the thing's about to be installed, right? It's, it's fall of 1931. They're going to try and get it installed in 1932. And the city council is about to vote on paying the sculptor 5000 bucks, which is way less. He wanted 50000 So they hadn't even paid him yet? No, they hadn't paid him yet. So it's the thing. It, it took three times as long as World War I to get the statue <laughs> finally installed. So at the, it gets approved by the council. And then the next battle was over the presence of either one helmet or two German helmets. The record's unclear. You know, this Pickelhauba, the helmet with the big spike on top? Yeah. The, the doughboy has these over his back. He, you know, he's 14 feet tall. He's huge. He's got these bronze German helmets on his back. City council said that was insensitive to the Germans who we vanquished. 
Wow. And the, the scholar I talked to in Brooklyn, she said, that's really unusual. Again, that's, I think that's sort of that Seattle well, that's sensitivity. That's Seattle process, thing. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Even back then. So, um, so that at some point, in between when the thing's unveiled and the city council says, wait a minute, you said you're going to take the helmets off. And the, the park superintendent said the contract didn't say anything about taking the helmets off. So it's on display down there in front of the Civic Auditorium with these helmets. It's dedicated later in the year officially. And by the time of the dedication, some people say, the helmet had been chipped off. It's gone. <laughs> And I don't know if that happened within a year or within about a decade. The yeah. record's a little unclear, but some, somewhere in someone's backyard, someone has this helmet, I think. It's huge. It's probably three feet across, I would oh, guess. Wow. Two and a half wow. feet across. That would I don't take know exactly. more than one person. And it's bronze, yeah. yeah. I checked with my brothers. They didn't steal it. They usually steal <laughs> history stuff. It wasn't one of them. But anyway, but, um, so I talked again to um, Mr. Sheehan at the cemetery. They ended up disappearing, the German helmets, but there was kind of the thought of, well, did that represent deceased German veterans as well? And there was some controversy on that. And then... Eventually, the bayonet was taken off years later. So there was a little bit of history there, I guess. Oh, I mean, soldiers took back souvenirs. There's no question about that. Yeah, but it's about sensitivity. But the bayonet disappeared, too. So I sensed a history mystery here, and I started prodding Sheehan. I apologize for the chuckles in this next cut. It's me in the background. Yeah, I I, I don't know exactly what happened to the bayonet. And and I don't know, because, of course, that goes back so many years what happened with the with the helmets either but that's kind of interesting so you're asking the thieves to step up yeah i'd love to see that bayonet return and that german helmet or helmets again i'm not sure if it's one or two but wouldn't that be neat to reunite you, all these things that created all this controversy 90 85 years ago and wow. heal those wounds of all of this would history. you keep them anonymous i think that oh would... no questions asked okay. we'll take it no back and, uh, so uh, we hope one morning that there will be a three-foot helmet that shows up on the front porch here at uh, Cairo Radio. Right next to the newspapers nobody Where's, reads anymore. And a bayonet. Yeah, yeah that's right. Where's no Johnny questions Doe Boy asked. Now? What happened to him? Where's Johnny Doughboy? Where's the statue? He's up at Evergreen with Shelley. Oh, he, he is there it, still. It, as we speak right now, That's there's for a lot of my family's uh, a dozen so. scouts are placing flags on 5,000 graves. Yeah. They do oh. it early in the morning. So, Lovely. And not to make light of Veterans Day, this is an important holiday, the anniversary of the end of World War One, and, and veterans, of course, are, did important things. But this statue is just such a twisted tale. So thanks for letting me share, share it with you. I'm Felix Bennell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.